Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hi, it is wonderful to be with you all today. I'm going to pose a question to you that today's guest, Craig Fear, posed to me in his most recent cookbook, and it's this. Why does the U.S. have 90,000 miles of coastland, yet import the majority of its seafood? As I said, my guest today, his name is Craig Fear. He's the author of three soup cookbooks, a certified nutritional therapy practitioner. He blogs at Fearless Eating, and he's a board member of the New England-based seafood nonprofit Eating with the Ecosystem, which promotes a place-based approach to consuming seafood. Craig fell in love with soups during his travels to East Asia, but in his most recent cookbook, the one that we're talking about today, titled New England Soups from the Sea, Craig returns to his roots. Now, to call this book a cookbook is actually a bit of a disservice because it is also a commentary on the historical, social, and financial reasons that the U.S. neglects the abundance, and I really do mean abundance, of seafood on its own shores. In fact, just another another fact for you. <laughs> in fact, another fact. We have more square acreage available here in the U.S. for fishing than for farming. Craig's book is also a primer on the types and uses of our seafood. And only after he does all that does he give us a huge collection of historic New England soups and chowder recipes. And we're going to talk at length about his favorite, a Connecticut clam chowder, which combines the best of the Manhattan clam chowder and the New England clam chowder. He says it might be very upsetting (laughs) to some people to die hard fans of either chowders, but he's going to tell you how he makes it, how to choose clams for it, and why he thinks this is the best chowder to try. Super excited to share this episode with you today. Before we begin, would you please take a moment to subscribe? right there in your player. Thank you so much. And here's Craig. So let's, um, let's just begin with your blog's name, which I think is Fearless Eating. Mm -hmm. Yes, Fearless Eating. Yeah. And (laughs) I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a play on words there. Obviously, your last name is Fear. Mm -hmm. But also, um, your your history of eating <laughs> really hasn't been that simple, right? I mean, it was a time where eating was actually, uh, you didn't know how it would even make you feel. Yeah, well, that's, a, yes, that's true. Uh, that's not actually related to my blog. <laughs> sounds like it might be. It's more just fearless eating is more about like my, my uh, I'd say, well, obviously, you know, it's a kind of a, you know, play off of my last name. Mm-hmm. That's the primary thing. But, but it's also, I, I kind of look at it as more like I'm very, very interested in, um, you know, uncommon foods. Mm. Um, I've done a lot of traveling in Asia and I just love mm. trying, you know, the more, the more exotic to me, the more interested I am in it. I, mm. I, I want to go to some place in the world or some ethnic restaurant that I've never tried. And I'm, I'm as, as interested in that food as anything else. <laughs> The, the, some of these cuisines, like the less familiar I am with it, the more, the more interested I am. Mm. <laughs> um, was it always that way? Were you ever a picky no. eater? Um, I grew up like, you know, the standard American diet. I grew yeah. up, uh, no one in my family is, is, is like me. Uh, you know, I didn't get this from my, my family or my friends growing up. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, ate the, I didn't cook much at all. really growing up. Mm. Um, none of this really, I don't know. I don't know when this really, I guess this really all became very, I became more interested after college when I started traveling more. Mm. Uh, I lived in Alaska for a few years and kind of a fishing <laughs> Did you? community. Yeah. And Homer, Alaska. Okay. Which was wonder, it was just the most, I think the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life is Homer, mm. Alaska. <laughs> mm. For anyone, if you have a chance to go to Homer, I don't think the cruise ships go there, unfortunately. It's on the, it's on the South Central Coast and... Um, Mm. It's just spectacular. These beautiful mountains in the background and these bald eagles and moose. And it's like everything you think about Alaska. But uh, anyway, so I lived there for two years. I worked mm. in a seafood restaurant. Um, and then Did I went, you? Yeah, it was, I didn't cook, but I worked in the front of the house. As okay. 
server. Okay. And I think that's where I really, my love of mm-hmm. seafood and food started. Mm. Um, you know, just the seafood was so fresh mm. and like nothing I'd ever tasted before. Mm. Salmon. I can't, I can't even eat salmon. I don't even eat salmon anymore today because mm. it was ruined for you. <laughs> when I had it there. <laughs> That's funny. You know, I went over 30 years not eating lobster. And at some point I kind of just decided in my mind, I was not going to eat lobster until I ate it in Maine. Um, <laughs> because the same kind of reason it was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> mm. So, but as far as like the, the thing back to like your original question, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I guess I started my, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, I did have some digestive issues for many years that mm. were kind of uh, somewhat debilitating. I mean, not like, um, I never had like a diagnosis, you know, it wasn't hmm. like I had Crohn's or, um, you know, some of these, some of these crazy issues. I don't know what it was. I went to doctors and everything was, and no one was, uh, could, could identify exactly what it was, but I just, I wasn't digesting my food well hmm. uh, and everything just made me feel bloated and heavy and it would just sit in my stomach and it was just, I, things were just sluggish and, um, yeah, so that, that kind of, um, went on for a few years and then I found a um uh I was kind of in between kind of uh careers there uh for mm. a while I found I always been interested in food and nutrition so I um I found this my friend who was doing was doing this online or this uh, alternative nutrition course called the nutritional therapy <laughs> training program and <laughs> I kind of I did some research on it it was felt like a good fit and I so I signed up I did the program and I became a certified nutritional therapy practitioner the course itself that um introduced me to like uh, i had to i kind of recognized that i needed to make some changes in my diet at the time i was actually okay. a pescatarian okay and i kind of got involved in a lot of the i was uh, practicing this style of meditation mm. and i'd heavily gotten into it and within my circle of people you know comes from india and and the east and so there's so many you know it's 95 percent of the people are vegetarians and i was reading a lot of you know pro vegetarian stuff and mm. it was the way right way i'm 100 this is how you know everyone should be vegetarian mm. blah 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 and then i had to recognize i had to look at and say i don't feel well like hmm. i don't feel i'm not digesting my food well and i'm not like anti-vegetarian diet right. i think it can be helped it can be very good for many people yeah but um i think i was you know i look back i think i was eating way too many grain-based foods Interesting. Which can kind of like cause some digestive issues. Mm. Um, probably Even if they're the really healthy whole grain type. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And actually what I learned in my course is that whole grains can be really problematic for a lot of people if your digestion is a little bit weak. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Because the body has to really kind of work to break down those grains. Right. Right. The reason it's good for some people is the exact reason why it's, it's actually quite impossible for others. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I learned about like, traditional preparations of grain what cultures used to do mm. before the advent of like industrialized foods and they would like take soak grains and ferment them and sprout mm. them and of course you know you go to the supermarket none of that stuff's soaked in right i love it mm-hmm. um anyway and so i've always been very thin i've had a very had a like kind of a wiry mm-hmm. kind of frame and i just my body was craving mm. <laughs> more and i had to listen to it and mm. the course that i did really looked at kind of traditional diets Hmm. and looked all around the globe and you know a lot of cultures most cultures do eat some form of you know meat Hmm. and of course you know we're not eating meat from factory farms and you know the horrible ways in Mm -hmm. which we eat today so I really looked at um I really looked to to source my um I changed my diet I introduced a lot of fermented foods I introduced a lot of bone broths kind of brought up the ate a little bit more protein and it took a while, but after six months, my digestive issues resolved after several really? years of really just, wow. A mess. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I want to go back and I I've, I've listed while you've been talking, I didn't want to interrupt you. I have like seven <laughs> follow-up questions just to try to um, get, get your story together and like kind of what led you to this work. Um, 
really focused on seafood, um, especially U.S. seafood and clams and chowders and soups. So my first question is, you talked about Alaska and how that was such a um, revelation to you, the freshness of the food. Um in addition to the beauty, and I have to say, I've never been to Alaska. It is absolutely on our short list of places to go. The reason I'm particularly looking forward to it is we spent two weeks in Iceland, and I think there's a lot of similarities. You know, they're almost the same latitude, um, climates are the similar are similar, and so I'm I feel like I have a taste of what we're going to see in Alaska. Except for I think Alaska is maybe like the scale is larger. Um. So I'm uh, I've never been to Iceland. So I can, all I can say is that the scale is magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yes. I hope it works. I hope I it happens it, like soon. It. It's amazing. Yeah. So in terms of the seafood there, you have a real focus on New England um, mm. in this book. Did you grow up in New England and were you exposed to seafood there? Like in my mind, New England and seafood go together like, you know, peanut butter and jelly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I grew up on Long Island, on the mm. north shore of Long Island. Um, I've lived in New England for oh, about 15 years now. Mm. The seafood of you know Long Island in New England is is very very similar. Um, mm. The chowders, you know, there's there's as much New England clam chowder on Long Island as there is the Manhattan clam chowder, mm. more so. Yeah. So um, yeah, I guess kind of grew up in the culture of northeastern seafood to a degree and I say that to a degree in that um you know my family was not a fishing family yeah um I I didn't really even become interested really in seafood until like again until I really moved to Alaska where I developed a love of it yeah and then coming back and living in New England my I was much more focused at that point on seafood and had a better understanding of it and wanting to support more local New England seafood a better understanding of you know, the locavore movement, which yeah. um, most people are aware of to some degree. Um, right. And which we're going to talk about, you know, at length here, um, which I'm looking forward to. So, yes. Okay. So um, you were you were kind of exposed, but it, like you said, Alaska was really when um, the idea of seafood was <laughs> revelatory to you. Like you became really enamored with it. Yeah, because it was all it was all like Alaskan seafood, you know, mm -hmm. like when I grew up on Long Island, I don't I didn't even eat any local. I think my mother made flounder here and there, mm -hmm. but I didn't eat much seafood. And whatever I did have, it was probably like everyone else, like yeah. out of a can or out of a box or like fried right. fish from McDonald's or all this thing. Right. Give people a very like negative impression of seafood. Yes, yes, and yes. Then, yeah. And then so when I learned what how amazing it is when it's fresh and local that kind of blew my mind open for, you know, the potential for not just Alaska, but everywhere. Yes. You know? so I kind of looked at new England seafood in my book. I really wanted to expose it and show people what there is beyond just salmon and cod and shrimp. Yeah. And we're getting at the supermarkets. Cause it's really important. We need to expand our choices. We need to be more curious. We need to cook more things. Yeah because it's going to help our local seafood economies. Right. And isn't it amazing that you had to travel, you had to go away <laughs> to appreciate what you had locally. And that's a real theme in your book that we're going to, we're going to talk about is um, how much we are not, we Americans, especially like I'm on the East coast, um, even though I'm not in, in New England, I live in Maryland, how much we have at our fingertips that we don't, we don't recognize or realize. And um we're yeah. definitely going to talk about that. I want to stick with your story for a minute because my understanding is that um, it wasn't just Alaska, but also Asia where you mm -hmm. developed this love for um, seafood and soups that again, you kind of like brought back to your home, your homeland of uh, New England. Can you tell us a little bit about that, your travels there and sure, yeah, yeah, so, how they affected your palate and your yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. I lived in Alaska um, for two, two years, two and a half years. So mm. I spent one full year there and I said, okay, I, let's see what an Alaska winter is like. And it was really <laughs> fascinating. That's a and whole different ball game, right? Yeah. And I love, it, it was really great for was it after one, I was like, that's it. I'm not doing this again. It was like, and so the second winter came along 
and I went to Asia for the, I went to Thailand for the, <laughs> you were like a, a retiree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were like a snowbird. <laughs> you went somewhere oh, tropical for the winter. That's great. Well, a lot of people do it. You know, this yeah. is a very transient place. People come, they work in the summer, they work the fishing boats, the restaurants and the mm. So I, oh, I didn't know that. A lot of okay. people, you know, and everyone, Thailand kept coming up a lot. Oh, you should go huh. to Thailand. Thailand's great, blah, 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 blah. Um, so I went for four months and it was really eye-opening to see their food culture. Huh. Uh, it was fascinating to see this where uh, the markets were just in, incredible, so vibrant, so much local, amazing food and um, so much different than like our food culture where you just go mm. to the supermarkets and things are just in these, you know, boxes and mm-hmm. especially with seafood, you know, the, the seafood is just, it's, it's whole, a lot of it's whole seafood. It's the people get the whole fish and, mm. uh, uh, they're much more knowledgeable about the local fish, much more variety of local fish. Mm. And you see it all, you know, it's not just these neatly packaged fillets, you see mm-hmm. it all fresh off the boats and, um, the soups, I just really got into the soups. Hmm. I went back a few years later to other parts of Southeast Asia, visited other countries, and uh, the soups just just always grabbed me because um, I don't know they're not like soups here, where I guess in America like soups are looked at as like you know appetizers and mm-hmm. you know, a lot of green vegetable soups we grew up with, but over there they're like they're full meals, they're noodle soups and rice soups and koji. Mm. And they're like they're you, you see them all, they're always kind of simmering in the streets and pots mm. and big vats and um it's just such a part of the culture and there's mm. just so many different varieties and things and i just fell in love with all that stuff so mm. yeah, that's where my love of soup really started back back there mm. okay and this I brought is it into my work as a nutritional interestingly i brought it into my work because i learned about um when i started working with clients for many years like bone broth was one of the biggest things i use with people with digestive issues it helped yeah. me and it has such healing qualities to it. Uh-huh. So I was using those broths that I learned about that I saw in Asia and kind of using them with people and getting a lot of good benefits with them. And then, of course, using those broths as a base for a lot of different soups so people can make at home mm. and start helping them as they help, as they help me too. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you talked about their broths. They add a lot more of a... Um, I think you were saying it was like a very different palate. They added a lot more of a sour, more sour notes than we tend to here in the U.S., yeah, I mean it's you know it's a different kind of um, uh, food culture over there. So mm-hmm. you know a lot of um, what do they call the four S's: uh, sweet, salty, sour, spicy. So a lot of the mm. soups have all four, three or four elements of those. So mm. like types of you know chilies, um, a lot of fish sauce, soy sauce, um, a lot of lime, tamarind mm. for like the sour components. Mm-hmm. And, even, you know, sweetness, even a little sugar, something not overly mm-hmm. sweet, of course, mm-hmm. but even, even some, a lot of soups do have like a sweet component to it as well. The balance, mm. nice balance of all those four mm. flavors and uh, they're just so fantastic. <laughs> yes. Yes. And how amazing for us and lucky for us that we have your cookbook that kind of imported like all of that, again, back to your, um, the resources that you had right there on hand in your, in your I don't want to say hometown, but your <laughs> or homeland, but you know um, your home environment, I guess, of New England. So, uh, just chronologically, how how did the travel and becoming a nutritionist and healing yourself? How did that all work together? So, were you able? Did you have the flexibility to travel because you were working as a nutritionist at the time, or was that like in parallel? Uh, that came later, actually. Mm. So, I traveled. Um, when I was in my mid twenties to Alaska and then to Thailand. And then, you know, you, you know, I wasn't rich or anything and money runs out. I did a call <laughs> do it for a brief time. And then, you know, I was lucky enough to have that opportunity to do it. And then, uh, you know, you have to come back and face <laughs> the real world yeah. and I was kind of <laughs> sooner <in> between, or later. <laughs> yeah. In between careers and stuff. So, um, I went back to, to school to, to be a nutritional therapist. Um, and then, and then kind of in, at that point, um, started incorporating some of the things I learned about broths and soups and was working with people for many years. And I, you know, I couldn't travel at that point until mm-hmm. about, oh gosh, I don't know. It took about seven or eight years to, before I was able to kind of go back again and, okay. and go back to some different countries and kind of even dig a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a book actually on Thai soups from my sec, not from more from my second trip to Thailand than my mm-hmm. first, all well, the first certainly informed it. 
Um, and then it's just kind of like kept rolling. I, I, I wrote this, you know, a little uh, book on broths and soups just as a result of my nutritional therapy practice. Mm. And then I wrote the Thai soup book as a result of uh, just going back to Thailand for the second time. Mm. Actually went back again a few years ago, just before the pandemic. Mm. And this, that in turn, like I, I took a step back and said, you know, I never intended to write soup books. <laughs> it just kind of happened organically. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, gosh, I live in New England. Uh, what do I love more than anything? It's, it's the seafood soups in New England. I mean, that's my first love. Mm. And here I am you know, I really believe in a place-based approach mm. to eating. And here I am in New England and I can really look at this, the seafood and bring in my love of broth and stocks from, you know, from seafood, which I think is, you know, fish stock, lobster stock, clam broth is mm. not as well explored. And mm-hmm. I thought there was an opportunity to like dig into that. Yes. Uh, and kind of, you know, look at traditional old school recipes in New England that have been forgotten, but also yeah. show people how you can use these broths and stocks and create amazing new ones yes which I in the book as well so here lo and behold here i am with three soup cooks cookbooks under myself <laughs> and never in a million years you know i grew up on long island and i never in a million years thought i'd ever be doing this but here i yes. am yes <laughs> well and i have to tell you I, I i think there's a real place for your book i learned a lot um immediately, like within the first paragraph of your book, I started learning. And I think the most, you know, you learn these facts you've never, you've never thought of. And as, as soon as you see it, you, you're almost like, gosh, what's wrong with our, what's wrong with our system here that I I've never realized this this before. And for me, that was when you, you wrote, there's this quote, you said in the U S we have more acreage available for seafood than for farming. Yeah. And that blew my mind because like you talk about most fish that we see in the supermarket is imported um, from other countries. And like you said, if you want to talk about an untapped resource in the U S I very, 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 very rarely eat seafood, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you say we have more acreage available for seafood than farming, that was just astonishing to me. So first of all, I want to ask us, go ahead. <laughs> me too. When I, when I, when I, Learn that. Yeah. Right. But it's like, well, it shouldn't be because we have this massive country with enormous coastlines. And then, like you said, when you follow the estuaries and the bays and the, I mean, Craig, (laughs) it's like, whoa, there is something wrong that we don't realize this as a nation. You want to talk about untapped resources. Yeah. People don't realize, um, they don't appreciate how, how much we have. They don't, people don't understand how wonderful our um fisheries are in the Mm. united states they are so heavily regulated more than any other country in the world and Mm. there's this this evolution of the past maybe 50 60 years of 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 learning like fishery science has gotten more specific and learned more like how to like keep these our fish stocks our shellfish stocks sustainable and healthy Mm. and we have these great and many fish, most fishermen are, are on board with it and follow these regulations because they know they have to, to, mm. to keep, you know, the, the future generations fishing. And we have um, so much, you know, we have this exclusive economic zone, 200 miles out from our shore. Yeah. That's, that's now, um, hour. That's well, most I, country now it's 200 yeah. miles from the coast is like, that's, yeah, who gets to decide that, Craig? Do we just kind of claim it, or is that like an international norm? How do you just get to say two hundred miles off any coast? Is that true? Two hundred miles off any yeah. coastline yeah. is considered part of the country. Yes, uh, I think it's um, an internet. I think it's through the United Nations. They have these uh, a law, uh, international okay. law, that if you have a coastline that two hundred miles out is is part of your country, and you can do what you want with it. Um, and so other countries can't come in like, so prior to, I think we, prior to 1976 when we had our federal law, the Magnuson-Stevenson Act go into effect, that kind of up until that point, up until 1976, 
any, anyone can come up to our coasts and came up Russia, European vessels were coming and just, you know, taking whatever they wanted in our, our fish stocks, not just ours, but probably all around the world really plummeted. With Interesting. The probably being the collapse of the cod fishery, which didn't happen many decades later, but was certainly, you know, the roots of that were decades before. Mm. Um, and so kind of seeing the decline in fish stocks, or, you know, throughout the 20th century, because the fishing technology had just, had just evolved to such a point where, you know, we were just catching so many fish because mm. of the, you know, steam and gas powered engines and the mass. Right. Yeah. We okay. Came obvious, like we're going to overfish everything if we don't put some regulation here. So that and did that act, just become obvious to us in the U.S. or kind of the whole world acknowledged I, that roughly the same time? I don't know. I'm sure other countries, yeah, must have acknowledged we're seeing it. it. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So, so then, so, that, so we've really done a good job of like, um, you know, putting some boundaries on our fishing water, our our, our oceans, and 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 regulating it. Like the the commercial fishing industry is heavily regulated. Yeah. So I think there's a bit of a myth and misunderstanding that everyone like we're all all commercial fishing is destroying the ocean. It's not that's that's not true. If, if it can be regulated, it can be very sustainable. And we should really be appreciating how much we have here in the United States. Yeah. But what happens is we have this ridiculously perverse system where we export so much of this, you know, very healthy seafood. Yeah. sustainably managed, sustainably caught overseas and are importing tremendous amounts of seafood from waters. We don't know if they're well managed or not. We don't know if they're clean or not. Yeah. Because you know, it fetches a cheaper price and we're flooding our markets with this cheap seafood, which is why our, our fisheries, our, our, our fishermen, fisherwomen, fisherwomen too, are struggling. You yeah. know, it's like we really, um, community fisheries are kind of disappearing they're yeah. really kind of struggling to hold on because they have to compete with these, uh, you know, fish, shellfish coming, you know, farm shrimp, farm salmon coming in yeah. from overseas, um, which is they're struggling to compete with these things. Yeah. As far as exporting, I don't um, I think it's a, a lot of things. I don't think I think it's because. Well, there's probably a lot of factors. OK, but what I, and I know in our country, like our tastes and yeah. seafood has narrowed dramatically yeah. since like pre-World War II. Like yeah. most people, they go to the, their, our knowledge of seafood has condensed. We, we only, I think we only, most Americans are only comfortable within about 10 species of seafood. And, mm. and half of those, four of them dominate are over 50% of what everyone consumes. And that is shrimp, mm -hmm. salmon, cod, and tuna. That's mm -hmm. what the overwhelming majority of Americans will go, will feel comfortable mm -hmm. purchasing. There's some others in there, but those are, that's the majority. Mm. And so that's kind of what people look for mm. at the supermarket. So yeah, guilty. Uh, yeah. And so <laughs> on, on fishermen, there's a lot more, you know, on the East coast, we don't even have salmon, you know, salmon's virtually almost extinct on the East coast. Mm. Um, and so there's dozens, hundreds more species and fishermen are catching these things and they have to send them overseas where there's markets for them. For example, mm. I'll give you like skate, skate wing, very popular in France. They love it. So a lot of it gets, gets shipped over to France. Hmm. Um, you know, some of these kind of smaller fish, like um, perhaps maybe porgy or, you know, herring used to be popular here, mm. uh, but a lot of Asian or squid, um, very popular in other countries we have it we tend the only way people eat it here is in calamari mm -hmm. <laughs> which is actually a pretty good demand for it but a lot of <laughs> i mean there's so many different species of fish that get sent overseas because we're just not familiar with it there's just not a demand for it here mm. so tell me tell me more about this because i i'm gonna just be blunt i don't like seafood I don't eat a lot of seafood. I well, seafood's expensive for one thing, but on top of that, I don't particularly like it. I don't have a taste for it. If I was to change that, <laughs> um, how well, first of all, why is it that most Americans don't have a taste for good, fresh, um, a variety of good, fresh seafood? What what got us to that point? Because yeah, you'll read um, 
you know, you'll read books about New England and they're talking about, like you mentioned herring. Um, you, you read about herring all the time. I've never even had it. I don't even know what it looks like, um, except for because of your book, you give like a really exhaustive um, index of different fish available in New England, which is great. But yeah, why? how did we get to this point where I personally don't like seafood, whereas I, if I was born in the same place 300 years ago, I probably would. And yeah. what should I do now to expand my own palate? Well, I can only, only share like my experience, what I, mm. you know, kind of grew up, you know, if you grew up from yeah. 47, I, you know, I grew up. Yeah, we grew up similarly, I'm sure. Yeah, yes. Supermarket, right? And so the supermarket is based more of a global market. You know, it's like foods from all over the country and international foods and by the time, you know, 70s, 80s rolled around, there wasn't a lot of seafood is in cans and, you know, frozen fish sticks. And yeah, and it kind of takes away, it makes it take taste flat and fishy. Mm -hmm. And I think when you have a negative experience in childhood with fish, especially mm -hmm. fish, right? It just like mm. you have something once and it doesn't taste good, especially fish. It just tastes overly like, again, overly fishy. That's a common mm -hmm. complaint. I, all the time I hear is like, oh, I just, some seafood's too fishy for me. It's too fishy. Mm -hmm. right? I get all the time. Fish is too fishy. <laughs> yeah. Is chicken ever too chicken-y? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, um, I get this in my family. My family's always, oh, we, it's just too fishy. Like, I'm, uh, like I always roll my eyes. But, <laughs> you know, growing up with that, it gives a negative impression. And then you just, I guess a lot of people just are hesitant, you know, because mm -hmm. we didn't, you know, we don't grow up going to like, fresh off the boats and, and where our mothers knew, you know, our modern kitchens really aren't set up for yeah. seafood either to be. Yeah. You, and you shared a story oh, about a particular fish that you hated as a child. And then it turned out that you were just not, you didn't know how to prepare it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in the, in the book, I give my, my bluefish. Experience. Exactly. Yeah. Do you mind sharing that? Yeah. As a kid, I grew up, uh, fishing uh, for bluefish on the Long Island Sound. Like, I just loved it as a kid mm. catching it. I mean, they just put up a really ferocious fight and mm. thrill of hooking one and reeling one in. It was just, it was thrilling when I was a kid. Mm. And then sometimes we just catch a whole bunch of them. And um, I, you know, my mother didn't know how to prepare bluefish and, or, so we just flay them or have them filleted and put them in the, put them in the, you know, we weren't, bleeding them and putting them on ice right away so i can't even remember they're probably just sitting in the bucket you know just kind of not you know losing their freshness for mm. hours and then we flame and you put them in the freezer and then like a month or two later thaw them and they just were just they were disgusting they just <laughs> taste so fishy right mm. and a lot of people you know well bluefish is fishy ugh, gross mm. but if you pro you know treat it properly which a commercial fisherman would Mm -hmm. bleed it, put it on ice, get it to the market fresh. It is fantastic. It, it has become actually my favorite fish. Like mm. I just, like, and it's seasonal. I love it because, you know, you can only get it for a few months in the summer. It has, yes, it has a strong flavor, but it doesn't mean it should taste bad. Like mm. overly fishy. It has a strong kind of oily, you know, it's an oil rich fish like salmon. Mm. And so they usually have a lot of a stronger flavor due to the the polyunsaturated fats mm. that predominate in them more than say like white fish. Mm -hmm. um, but I just think it's fantastic. And I love it now. And mm. I think that's a lot of people have that experience from childhood or yeah. how to prepare something, or even maybe in the fish market, didn't, didn't properly mm -hmm. handle it, you know, and it, or even maybe at a restaurant, you know, and yeah. the lesson is if you treat fish right and, and, and it's, uh, preserved and even it can be frozen. Many fish can be preserved well frozen now. Mm -hmm. uh, it tastes fresh. It should taste delicious. And th I just love like the flavors of the sea. I just think they're like, I like a briny flavor. Mm -hmm. I love fresh ocean aromas. And I think it's, this is my favorite food. And I think if, mm. if, if you don't like it, you try to like give it a, give it another chance. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. Yeah. And you would, you would say that one of the ways to give it a fair chance is to like establish a relationship with an actual, uh, local fishmonger. Yes. Yeah. They're, 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 they're the kind of the conduits between like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the fishermen and, and they, they have a great knowledge of, um, usually have a really good knowledge of fish and obviously want to sell you something that tastes fresh and mm -hmm. good. And you can always, 
I always say, I say in the book, you know, get to know your local fishmonger and um, ask them questions and um, ask them what's local, what what do they recommend? Mm -hmm. um, they're going to be a good source of um, a, a great resource for you if, yeah. if you're if you're like new to it. Right now, you talk about so about seventy five percent of my listeners are Americans, um, but obviously not all of them live on either one of the coasts or along one of these estuaries, inlets, lakes, something like that. Let's say somebody from Oklahoma is listening. You would say they still have good options to support um, local and ethical. Well, maybe not local, but ethical U.S. farming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I, I say that just, just to simplify when you go to the, you know, the, the fish market, sometimes it can be confusing. There's a lot of different labels. Um, yeah. What's sustainable, what's not. And so I think it, to simplify it, I just tell people look for anything um, caught in the U S any seafood from the U S okay. sustainable. And what can we be assured of? Yeah. So what are we assured of if we buy something caught in the U S um, our waters are very clean. They're not coming from polluted waters. Mm. Um, and we have strict management mm. of the fish stocks and the shellfish stocks. And so you can be virtually guaranteed that, um, that the, that the fish stocks are healthy. Mm. And I should say the fish, you know, the fishery science is not a perfect science. It's not mm. like it's imperfect. And sometimes the stocks do get overfished, but then that's when this, the management will put stricter quotas on things and it mm. will take some time. But we've had a lot of success in this country rebuilding dwindling fish stocks and bringing them back to sustainable levels. Haddock, um, uh, swordfish, mm. um, uh, a number of many species have been overfished in the past and then quotas or even stopping fishing for a while. And then mm -hmm. over time they rebuild. And so mm -hmm. we have to have that management system in place. And mm -hmm. a lot of fishermen, most fishermen like being on board with that is, it's, you know, that's a great, it's a sustainable system we have in this country. Mm -hmm. So when you go to the fish market, if it's from the United States, and I should also say, um, our shellfish, many types of shellfish um, that you're going to get at the market are mm -hmm. farmed and shellfish farming Shellfish aquaculture is one of the most sustainable, is wonderfully sustainable, actually really incredibly beneficial mm. for our um, for our ecosystem for for our uh, ocean ecosystems. Um, mm. Tell tell so me more about that. Clams, mm. clams, mussels, oysters, and sometimes scallops um, mm. that are farmed. Like there's a lot of controversy around aquaculture, mm -hmm. but that's mostly the controversy is mostly in the realm of fish and shrimp farming. Hmm. When mm -hmm. it comes to the, those four, I just mentioned like all the benefits, all the good things you hear, they encompass all the good things without almost, with almost no negatives. The f so what, what are the good things that come along with uh, shellfish farming? Well, primarily the, the, when you farm them, they're in their natural habitat. Like mm. fish farming is, is essentially, as far as I'm concerned, there's a lot of different opinions on it, but I look at it as, at as fish factory farming. I don't particularly mm. like fish, at least salmon. Um, same for shrimp. and um, But the oysters, clams, mussel scalps, they're in their natural environment. And the big thing is you don't, you don't have to feed them anything. They just, <laughs> they're natural. They feed what's on the microorganisms right there. And Interesting. So and things don't get out of whack where they like overfeed or anything like that. It's just something that the ecosystem kind of uh, um, balances itself out. Right. Well, part, one of the problem with um, controversy around salmon farming is um, mm. the fish feed kind of like taking the wild stocks to feed the salmon. Mm. And you know, a lot of people say that the fish feeds improving and they're, you know, it's becoming more efficient and it's better than it ever was, which I'm sure it is, which that, mm. that's a good thing. But nevertheless, you still have to like process, you know, the feed mm. and ship it. And, you know, uh, whereas you don't have to do, there's no, you don't have to feed these, the shellfish, anything and they're filter feeders. So they're, they're they help to kind of clean, you know, mm. the clean, clean our, our shorelines, the clean the waterways. So okay. all the benefits are, inherent in like when you see us 
you know, blue mussels or um, clams, you know, some of them are wild caught, not, not all of them, but I think the majority that you're going to find in, in, in like a, with a fishmonger at their market or in the supermarket, mm-hmm. the majority are going to be farmed. Yeah. And that's good. <laughs> in that case, that's a good thing. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. It's like we develop these buzzwords, right? And if you say them, it has to be a bad thing. So farmed has kind of been marketed as automatically a bad word, but you're saying that's not the case. It's actually quite a good thing. And yes. um, when it comes to shellfish, because if we're establishing farms, we're essentially establishing places where the water is kind of guaranteed to be cleaned by these shellfish. Um, so yeah. I, I asked something a little while ago, and then I took us off, <laughs> but I want to go back to it now, which is if um, the science and the regulations in U.S. have kind of worked together to create very um, clean, sustainable, um, not just sustainable, but actually even thriving um, seafood populations, why is it that it it is it is true what you said. I actually I think you said in the book ninety percent of our seafood is imported. So I asked earlier: Is this a marketing issue? Is it a price issue? Is this like a yeah like back to marketing a public perception that we perceive it to be more exotic and better somehow? Why is so much of our seafood imported? Um, I think it has a lot to do with our. Um you know, globalization and opening our markets and other countries' mm. markets to trade. Mm. And so, you know, like, so, so for the example, for shrimp, we have mm. really great shrimp all along our coasts. Mm. You know, probably most well-known would be in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but the shrimp farms all around the world can raise and produce them at a much cheaper price. And mm. they, when they hit our markets, um, you know, there's a market for it. And so a lot of this yep. seafood, there's a, um, they become like commodity, they're commodities that, you know, they can be produced and packaged and shipped, you know, relatively easily and command like a, a good price for them, like a stable price. And mm-hmm. um, shrimp would be like the, the best example. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they're just part of this kind of global demand based system Yeah. where what the public wants and knows like they'll supply it like the farms mm. will they'll make the farms the salmon farms the shrimp farms to supply this like demand this growing huge growing demand for again i'll use shrimp and salmon as the biggest mm-hmm. example since like mm-hmm. the 70s 80s to like feed this kind of growing demand for it because people are familiar with it they like the taste they know it mm. um and then that hurts kind of our local shrimp uh yeah. shrimp fisheries and our kind of wild salmon fisheries yeah so my point i tried to make in the book is not just for the united states but everywhere around the world it's kind of a growing awareness of like the problems with this you know when you ship seafood around the world sometimes you know it, it travels thousands of miles from mm-hmm. from where it's caught and has to multiple planes it gets shipped on and trucks and there's a huge carbon footprint to this meanwhile mm-hmm. You're living on the coast and like, you know, a stone's throw away is on the water is this amazing sustainable fish, but you're, you know, eating salmon, Atlantic salmon grown in Pacific ocean from Chile. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we could, I try to just raise awareness of to go from as consumers, we could, we we need to go from this global demand based system. Mm Mm-hmm. To like what what I call this so, like a supply based system where you're looking at what's local, mm-hmm. what's um, kind of what's in season and mm-hmm. what's available and what's sustainable. What's the, and, mm-hmm. and that's you know as much as possible. I think we have a long road to go because so many people are not aware of what's local and not aware mm-hmm. of like a little you know seafood. I think the local bar movement with seafood lags quite a bit far mm-hmm. behind the agricultural kind of local mm-hmm. bar movement. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. A lot of it comes, has to do with this idea of tastes. And so I, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I want to ask, well, why is, you know, us uh, seafood so expensive? And the thing is, it's because I'm thinking about it wrong. Like what I'm really asking is why is shrimp, and salmon grown in the U.S. so expensive? And I think the answer is, well, 
you should be eating, uh, trying some of the thousands of varieties that mm-hmm. are um, in a like in plentiful supply um, on U.S. coastlines. And if we developed a taste for that, we would find that they were actually much more reasonably priced. So you talked about some bargain seafood, some um, which uh, bargain seafoods makes it sound like it's not going to be good quality. So I liked that you kind of said uh, a better way of saying it is undervalued fish. Um, so some undervalued fish that we should be trying. We just we don't really know about it, so there's no demand for it. And uh, but if if we tried it, we would find that it was reasonably priced and brings us all this uh, benefits of seafood. So tell us a little bit about some of those undervalued fish. Yeah, sure. So um, let's see, I can, I can pinpoint a few of them. So like in the, in the, you know, a lot of people that for whitefish, they go right to like cod and haddock. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So cod fisheries has been struggling a lot in the past decades. Um, Just so we, US or, or worldwide? Um, I think mostly in the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. Um, like in a, you know, I think it collapsed in the nineties. It's never, mm. it's never kind of uh, recovered to the, mm. to, you know, to what it used to be, mm. but it's still like, it can be fish. There's still a lot of cod out there, mm. uh, but it would be good to like choose alternatives to cod. And there are, are ter- there are fish in the cod family that, I mean, it's hard to almost taste the difference. They're very similar. So mm. one would be um, Atlantic Pollock is, mm-hmm. is in the cod family. I think it's, I like it better than cod. I think it's a little bit, um, a little bit firmer. Mm. Um, I like its flavor a little bit better, but it's, you know, it's very subtle. Mm. And that's the thing with white fish. I, I try to make the point that the difference is not a dramatic difference in the flavor of different types of white fish. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and well, especially go ahead. Sorry. I apologize. It's not apples and oranges, you know, like if, uh, cod versus like a like a i don't know like a halibut yeah it's different but it's not dramatically you know it's not right like- well and especially when you're putting it in a soup with all these different flavors um really how much difference are you going to tell you know it's not like it's on a plate unseasoned <laughs> you know a taste test between one and the other right exactly and that's, that's the point i try to make is just i encourage people to be curious to try different things and in the soup form you know when it's not like the featured the only thing like it's not like a baked mm. roasted thing you know right it's gonna yeah. blend. you might not even like it might not going to be that obvious of a difference yeah but just to, just to get back to you just a few other fish i want to mention like again this is all coming from um you know new england because i wanted mm. to really focus on new england fish yeah um we have, uh, I think a lot of people know monkfish, but that's a very sustainable um, kind of bottom fish that has a really nice flavor. That's mm. fairly affordable. Like right now, it's uh, it's one of the, I, I'm always amazed at the price of that. Mm. It's you know, significantly more affordable than some other mm-hmm. fish you'll find in the market. Um, we have porgy, or sometimes it's called sea bream or scup. Mm-hmm. which is so abundant and sustainable, kind of a smaller fish, but mm-hmm. um, very abundant um, on, in the, on the New England coast. And there's um, black sea bass and there's so many of them, blue fish mm-hmm. in the summer, mm-hmm. um, Atlantic mackerel used to be a lot more common, kind of, again, a small kind of oily fish, but super flavorful. Mm-hmm. So I, I just encourage people when you go to the market, ask your fishmonger, like what's local, what's in season, try mm. something, try something different, throw it mm-hmm. in a soup recipe. Like it's not going to be, it's not going to change any the flavor dramatically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, if we don't know how to cook it, that's because I think that's one of the fears of trying something new. Like what if we do our own bluefish disaster? <laughs> yeah. Right. But that's, that's actually where I think your book is so helpful is we don't have to fear that we're not going to cook it properly because not only do you provide recipes, but leading up to the recipes, you have chapters talking about the different types of fish, what, um, how to cook them, what they work well. in. like you, for me, it was actually a distinction between oily fish and what's, what's the other non-oily? Is it whitefish and oily fish? What are the 
two categories. Uh, yeah, make the distinction. I call it oily fish and like lean, mild white fish. Lean, mild white fish. Yeah. So, you know, that right there was very interesting to me. So um, there are resources out there like your book <laughs> to kind of teach us the right way to do these. And you also mentioned, again, going back to like, if we don't live in New England or near a coastline, you did even mention a couple of um, a couple of U.S. Um, I don't know what you would call them fisheries, I guess maybe, but they, um, they ship and they ship in a way that, you know, still gets you your seafood fairly, fairly fresh. Yeah. There's, I think the one I mentioned is in new England based out of new England, it's called mm. red's best and they're fantastic. Mm. Um, you can go to redbest.com and they have all new England sustainably caught, um, fish shellfish shellfish from all around new england from different boats you can actually mm -hmm. like see like what what the fishermen they have the story like the fishermen who caught your, your fish oh wow you order from them online and they'll ship it anywhere in the united states wow and i think there's other others that are i think this will be hopefully i think with the pandemic more fishermen and kind of like fisheries started to see the potential in that through through kind of online because it takes the middleman out they make more money which is good yeah. for them yeah um and so i tell people like if, if you live like i don't know where you are like look like in maryland or the mid-atlantic or the southeast like do a little google search see if you can find something yeah someone doing that near you i i, I think more more people are going to be doing this in the future which is which is good mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So one last question about like the seafood industry, and then I want to talk about the specific recipe that you gave us. Um, but you have talked about a lot of um, success stories. You know, you, you brought up haddock a little bit earlier. Um, you brought, you, you mentioned that caught is the opposite. It, it's, it kind of collapsed in the nineties and hasn't come back. How much of this is related to um, environmental issues, um, climate change, uh, either regulations kind of in support of, or, or not of the environment, like how much is all of this related to, um, the environment and how can our buying practices positively affect the environment? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it, gets, it depends on the species. So for cod, it was mm. definitely overfishing. It wasn't mm. the environment. No question it was overfishing. Mm -hmm. However, with global warming, there are some, there is going to be, we've already seen it in the past decade, uh, a change, like some of the southern species now are with warming waters are coming north. Mm -hmm. well, you know, where I grew up on Long Island, there, there used to be a thriving lobstering industry. That is gone. There is no mm -hmm. more lobsters in, mm -hmm. and they're very afraid in Maine, like that, they, they, and they probably will be, you know, it's kind of scary. These kind mm. of the, the things are going to be changing. Mm. Um, I used to, I also showed the example of shrimp. There used to be really nice uh, small regional shrimp fishery in New England, and mm. that has now gone north outside of it's out of New England now. They've kind of mm -hmm. traveled north, so it's, they don't even have it there anymore. So, yes, um, it, things are going to be changing, um, and it's good to that's even a better reason to be open to trying different things mm -hmm. and being. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, oh, well, again, here in New England, we're seeing more and more black sea bass now, which mm -hmm. is a wonderful, fantastic fish, but coming north and more blue crab, you know, typically in your area mm -hmm. <laughs> is now we're finding more of them in New England, southern New mm -hmm. England. So, yeah, I mean, things are going to be shifting a lot, unfortunately, but we can adapt to that by being curious, by trying new things and incorporating different types of species. Um, and, 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 and starting those, those undervalued species, again, are really, uh, um, you can find some, like, again, you said bargain, that's fine. You can find some great bargains on these things because mm -hmm. if, when there's not a demand for them, you can't, they can't fetch a huge price. So you can get them at really great deals. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Okay. Well, let's talk about the specific recipe that you, uh, <laughs> That you gave us, and I laughed and laughed reading it because um, you you said like a lot of people have very strong feelings about this soup, and some would consider it 
anathema, <laughs> you know, yeah. so um, you called it Connecticut clam chowder, but you said most people wouldn't recognize it under that name. So tell us about the soup, the flavors in it, why it's uh, so controversial and how it evolved, how the recipe evolved in your own kitchen. Yeah, there's a whole story behind this recipe. I guess mm -hmm. that's apropos for your podcast. Uh, <laughs> So when I was doing, when I was, you know, started doing this cookbook, obviously I knew, I knew I had to knock it out of the park with the chowder chapter. You know, I wanted to just, I didn't, I, I, yeah. You know, around New England, we have there's different regional styles. There's obviously the two that everybody knows, which is like New England clam chowder, the creamy version, and then Manhattan clam chowder, right? The tomato base. And there's a lot of like, cause debate and, you know, arguments over a lot of, a lot of New Englanders just hate Manhattan clam chowder. I think it's, you know, <laughs> no part of tomato should be absolutely no part of any chowder. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but you know, it's, it's, it is a common, it is on, on the Southern coast of Connecticut and, and Rhode Island. It's, it's just as common as, as the creamy mm. uh, white chowder, if you want to call it that. Mm. Um, so when I was doing, you know, I'm doing the research for the book and creating and, and doing these different regional things. There's also like Rhode Island clam chowder and a Maine clam chowder. I found this thing online called the Long Island clam chowder. And like, I'm from Long Island and I'm, it just baffled me. I've I'd grown up. I'd never do It's like a different style. And I mm. had never seen this on Long Island. I've never heard of it. No one ever made it. I never saw it in a restaurant. So I did some poking around and it was, I was confused if it was really like a thing or mm. not. Yeah. Or if somebody just kind of slapped a name on something they tried yeah. one day. Yeah, it just like you know, it seemed to be gimmicky. Like the the kind of com what they did is they combined New England and Manhattan together. Yes, um, and well, you know, Long Island is geographically between like Manhattan and 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 New England, so that that's kind of the name. So yeah, lo and behold, I did find a few places online that were actually serving at two restaurants, mm -hmm. and I, I my parents still live in the town I grew up in on Long Island, so I the, one of these places was not far from where mm -hmm. I grew up. And so I'm like, oh, I, I went straight there. I'm like, I got to try this thing. What mm -hmm. is Long Island clam chowder? And it was terrible. <laughs> was, like, <laughs> was it? I was insulted. I was a kind of, an, I was kind of angry at it. What, what did you not like? Well, it was clear from what they, what they served me. It was very clear and obvious that all they did was take a, you know, a ladle of the clam of New England and a ladle of the clam of the Manhattan and, and put it in the bowl. I could see it was like evenly, it was like not colored evenly. Oh was like, wow! It wasn't any good, and I was like, "Well, that who, that's not hard. Like, what's yeah? What's <laughs> There's nothing thoughtful about this. Yeah, it was just a gimmick, and I thought, okay, that my this is just a gimmick. It's not a trend that's catching on, right? This is a silly little thing that yeah, you know, I don't. Know. Anyway, however, it did kind of make me think. Wait a minute. I, there's some potential here. I, mm. I thought, you know what? I bet I could make, it just gave me an idea. Like I, I, I could make, I could make something like this and mm -hmm. I could make it taste a lot better. So I did, I did. I went home and I made it from scratch and all I did, it's nothing crazy, but all I did was make a Manhattan base of a Manhattan clam chowder, which is the but, red, which is the red, but without, uh -huh. and I'm without all the vegetables, like oh. no peppers, no carrots. That's one thing I, Mm. I kind of agree with a lot of people like there's this kind of sentiment that Manhattan clam chowder is sometimes just tastes like just a, a boring vegetable soup. Vegetable. And I totally agree. Interesting. My Manhattan clam chowder recipe in my book, I took out a majority of the vegetables. And mm. when you do that, I, I think the flavor of the clams come through beautifully and it, it's actually mm. delicious. It's actually, I, I know a lot of New Englanders won't, won't follow up on this, but if you make a clam Manhattan clam chowder, from scratch mm. with real quahog hard shell clams that you steam yourself and use the clam broth. Mm. It's fantastic. Like clams and tomatoes, they make, they're just as good as cream and tomato. Mm. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of opinion. So anyway, all I did was make the Manhattan uh, kind of like a more refined toned down version of Manhattan. And then you just finish it off with cream. Mm. It's, del it's delicious. Well, uh, you will never get an argument for me on adding cream to anything. <laughs> no, I'm not a purist. I'm not, I'm not a Boston or a, a what is it? A Red Sox or a Yankees fan. So I, I don't have a dog in the fight, but um, yeah, you can't go wrong adding cream as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of tomato soups have cream added to them. 
Like that's sure. that idea is not uncommon. So the idea of, you know, and tomatoes and seafood and cream and seafood are both common combinations. So, uh, hey, you've sold me. I'm I'm excited to try it. <laughs> My question as I go into making it is, um, well, I have I have two. First of all, you talk about like the outcome of the soup, right? This isn't a novel idea. The outcome of any dish depends entirely on the quality of the ingredients. And so you talk about the quality of the clams and the quality of the tomatoes. And so how should I, and anyone who's going to make this recipe, how should we shop for our clams and tomatoes? What do you recommend there? Yeah, that's like especially the clams, that's like the most important thing. And also I just want to go back real quick. Cause I just, I just want to clarify, like I, although this chowder is, um, you know, I got it from long Island, uh, you know, it really, I felt it was a gimmick. And I, yeah. so I thought the spirit of the chowder, even when I made it was really Connecticut because Connecticut mm. really does sit right between, you know, it's right. Like that dividing line between Manhattan and, and got and it. Other parts. So I just, you know, I just gave it to Connecticut. I, I see. <laughs> Connecticut's like Sweden in this story. It's, yeah, or it was, it was Switzerland, right? It's yeah, neutral. <laughs> I'll give it to Connecticut. So it's Connecticut clam chowder. Love it. Love um, it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yep. Yeah, so for the, uh, for the ingredient in all the recipes, not just this one, all my chowder recipes, I really emphasize uh, purchasing whole cohogs, the, mm. the, the essential hard shell clam of mm -hmm. New England. Okay. And so is there a soft shell clam? Yes. It, yes. There was a soft, soft oh, shell clam. Okay. Steamers. Yep. Oh, steamers are oh, okay. And are they actually, give me a little clam lesson here. What do I need to know? They're not, the shells aren't soft. They're just, um, they're not as, they're not, uh, they're more brittle. They're thinner oh. than hard shell clams. I, I don't know. Okay. Call them soft shell. They're not, you know. Okay, and this isn't like an age thing that the soft shell is younger or anything like that. They're kind of they're different. Yes, they're different species. species. Or yeah, okay. Yes, but and you can make a chowder with with uh, soft shell clams. And I actually have one recipe that does a main a main clam chowder, which they often will use soft shell clams. But most mm -hmm. chowders really are um, are made with uh, cohogs, the hard shell clams, and they just the key the reason. You want um, with a bunch of reasons, but when you make them with a you know whole real clams, not canned clams, but actually mm. the, you get you go get the whole clams and you 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 steam them, you can create this really magical clam broth, which mm. is mm. it's this very pungent, fragrant, strong tasting broth. Mm. You, you make it yourself. It's just, it's not as, uh, you just, there's no substitute for it. Mm, it mm -hmm. a fantastic base. Like clam chowder should taste like clams. It should taste strong. It should taste mm. briny. Um, and so when you use canned clams, you don't have that strong tasting clam broth. Mm. Um, and it's, I don't find it to be as, you know, it's not nearly as flavorful. And in canned clams, they're, they're really kind of, they take out the clam belly. So it's really just the muscle. Mm. Okay, I mean, interesting. Just keep that clam belly in the you know, when you steam the clams, you get the clam broth, and then of course, mm. you're gonna remove the clam meats. And you can chop them up a lot, um, you don't have to chop them up as fine. Mm. I can find you just get those nice, meaty, juicier pieces. Okay, um, so you get the really just wonderful clam flavor when you, okay. when you use hogs yourself, when you buy them yourself and you steam them. Okay, that's that's what I'll do. How about the tomatoes? <laughs> Uh, yeah, to me, you know, just get a good quality, you know, it is actually, I am, you do want to use canned clams in this case. Yeah. You canned toma want, tomatoes, canned tomatoes. Sorry. Yes. Canned yeah. Okay. Fresh. No, <laughs> we got tomatoes. you. We heard you loud and clear. Yes. All right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, any, you know, good quality, uh, any good quality, like I, I usually try to get a good quality organic, uh, canned tomato, um, product near Glenn or, um, what's the other one? There's another one I tend to get, but I find them to be, you know, perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I've never steamed clams before, and that's an intimidating prospect for me. It feels like steaming anything, there's a risk of under or over, and then that affects the texture. Um, 
give me all your tips on steaming. Give us. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the only one. There's other listeners out there. Give us all the tips on steaming clams. Easiest thing in the world you could possibly do. It's, really? All you do is you... Uh, so in, in my most of my recipes, I try to make like serving sizes like six to eight people. Mm. Mm-hmm. So at that, um, so that for that you ha- I put you know, all my ingredients. It's all like about seven to eight pounds of quahogs, which is you mm-hmm. know you would need a fairly decent size stock pot. So, but all you do for seven to eight pounds, you just put about three cups of water, mm-hmm. bring it to a boil mm-hmm. in a, in the stock pot, put the clams in, mm-hmm. cover them, and when they open, that's it. They're done. It's it. Inside, not in like in a steamer or you actually put them in the water. You put them in the water. Oh, really? Oh, okay. What happens is, is that, you know, in, in, just like with oysters, like a lot of shellfish, they have, you know, they have the, um, these very briny juices inside. Mm -hmm. And so when they open the, the, the juices will kind of infuse the release. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it turns the water into like a nice um, steely gray. It doesn't look like a great color, but it's it should be a steely grayish kind of color. Really? Okay. Um, and that's that's a good. It should be cloudy. Okay. But it will be. I mean, it's, they, it's, that's it, it's always the same result. When it, if it's really strong for whatever reason, like if, like you can just you know you just add some water after it mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. But again, it should be. It should taste strong and briny. You don't want it okay. to taste flat. Right. And you know, it should be. Yeah, it should make your mouth pucker a little bit. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Amazing. Salty and strong. That's that's what you want. Okay. Yeah, I can't wait to try it. I really can't. I can't. Um, well, I thank you so so much for your time today. Is there anything that you feel like you wanted to really communicate and you didn't get to? Uh, well, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of it. I mean, um. Yeah, if people want to like learn more about me, like my my blog is fearlesseating.net. Yes. Where they can um, you know, I have a few ways to sign up for my newsletter. You can see some of my recipes. I've been doing lots of seafood in the last few years. Um yeah. and my book you can find on any of the uh, major book sites, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Yes. You can yes. find it on links on my website or if you go direct to Amazon as well. Yes. And in the show notes, we'll have links to everything. We'll have links to your website, your socials, um, yeah, where to buy your books and and all of that for sure. Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much, Craig. I hope you really enjoy your walk with your dog. Yes. <laughs> right now I can hear her getting ready. <laughs> oh, good. Perfect. Perfect timing. Okay. Well, I learned a lot. I'm sure everyone listening did as well. I really hope you have a great day. Thanks, Becky. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for listening today. I would like to just ask three favors and please don't tune me out right now because I I need you to help me. First, would you please take a moment to subscribe right there in your player if you haven't done that already. If you're listening from the website, that's wonderful. If you generally listen to um, podcasts in a player, then just switch over there, search for the storied recipe and subscribe. If not, then that's okay. What I would love for you to do is to subscribe to my newsletter. Um, You'll get an update every Friday morning with a link to the episode, a link to the recipe, couple photos. Um, I am a food photographer and uh, a little update from, from my life as well. You can do that right there in the show notes. Scroll down to the bottom where it says sign up to the newsletter. Second, could you please leave a five-star rating or review for the podcast? This helps a lot as Apple Podcasts and other players um, try to decide which podcasts they're going to push out um, to listeners, which suggestions they're going to make. So I, I would really ask that you do that, please. And then finally, could you just forward this to someone you know who would enjoy it? Um, that is the best chance I have of gaining a new listener is if the suggestion comes straight from you. Thank you all so much. Thanks to Craig. You can find all of his contact information right there in the show notes, as well as a link to where to buy um, all three of his books. And that's it. I hope you have a great week, my friends. My friends.